You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to creatives and activists who challenge ideas on race at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. I'm Lou Mensa, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week I chat with Zarina Muhammad from the White Pube the collaborative identity of her and her partner, Gabrielle, in which they write about art. They say that 99% of reviews are boring for reasons which you'll find out in this episode. And they started the white pube to actually state how art makes them feel. Their reviews and this episode come with strong language, mostly from me, um, and some adult content. The white pube described themselves as the opposite of old white men with posh accents talking about art. They work from their bedrooms in Liverpool and London and they say that they just want to write about art that makes them feel some kind of way and to sometimes critique this industry as a whole and the mad way in which it fucks people over. Since October 2015, they've written reviews come rain or shine and they have a regular art column in Dazed. Zarina and I cover so much about what is wrong in the art world as we see it. You're going to love it and you're going to want to take her up on her kind offer of helping you lot out in any way that she can. So if you're an artist of colour, she tells you at the end of the episode how to get in touch with her. Because we're all in this together. She's earned the stripes when it comes to knowing how the art machine works for and against us. On the way back from the show, I went from the show to the like to the studio at uni, and I think I was on the bus. And I, I like it, it must have been that day when the Evening Standard do their like double page art review spread. Oh yeah. we all know it (laughs) but like they had a review of the show I'd just seen the John Raithman show and like it it was just like a a really nice kind of watershed moment because I don't think I like I don't think before I'd ever had like such a stark contrast of like this is what art criticism kind of looks like in the public consciousness of a lot of people Mm -hmm. and it was just like about like three, four hundred words, five hundred words maybe, and it was like, oh, it was it was just a description of what was in the room, and then all of a sudden like four stars. Yeah. Like, what 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 does that mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> how why? And I think I was like low key fuming about it, so I brought this I brought the newspaper into the studio. I like whacked it on the desk, and I was like, right, I'm fuming. I had like a proper cob on about it. <laughs> um. I think like as a studio culture St Martin's had one of those kind of environments where you could just like natter on about art and like your problems and your issues with it for about two hours and then not do any work but you still felt like you were productive Mm. so we had one of those moments where we kind of like spoke about how ridiculous it was to like not really give any justification or any kind of like not speak from the personal or like provide any reason why there were three stars just describe what's in the room and then four stars three stars whatever and we kind of like we spoke about like the way it was subjectivity masquerading as objectivity like perhaps certain Mm. critics with certain identities have an ability to speak objectively because that's what you know their subjectivity allows it Mm. and like these kind of weird binary states and I think at the end of it me and Gab were like 
let's just fucking write about art ourselves mm. on like that very day we bought the domain name <laughs> she says that i shouted we should call it the white pube <laughs> i don't remember this <laughs> the point at which we decided to start the white pube was like it, it was like a really concentrated moment of frustration with mm. all of that but it kind of went unspoken i think maybe six months in we we kind of started thinking about what we were doing but like at the beginning it was very much a joke we we, we thought this was really really fucking funny mm. like, I wonder if Jay Joplin is aware of <laughs> what the name. I love the name, so your name so much. And I was, um, I was like looking at your work and reviews, and I must have said to my partner, "Oh yeah, you know the next the next interview I'm doing is the with the white pube girls." And um, it was about three days later, like my ten year old just out of nowhere when I was cooking was like, "Mum, what's a white pube?" <laughs> okay right so now we're going to talk about art and art galleries and art criticism and what they're doing if we're in a certain certain contexts with like people who are a bit like higher up in the art world we'll say like oh yeah we write for the white pube and they'll take us really seriously for a second they're like oh oh wow oh my goodness well you're so young how oh my goodness how do you find and we're like oh no sorry it's not the white cube like we just and they're like oh because they like they just It's like a very funny, and sometimes I'm like, I don't know how to correct you. <laughs> exactly. I'll just leave you with that, and you just walk away and process it, and it will it will come to you in a moment. I've been listening um to your um reviews that you've got online up on the site, which I love because they do exactly what you say. The reason why that you both started it because your reviews um sound how we talk about art with our mates. And it's the honesty when there's nothing to lose, you know. And I read um, a Guardian interview that you did recently and you said we didn't really know what we were doing. It was just about getting our feelings out. And the way that the words are positioned isn't what matters. And I think that's really interesting because you write your views in a very natural way, how you might text a friend, like write, telling them about it. Um but in your review for the Zoe Paul show in Bristol, she's a white artist and she featured interpretations of black bodies in that show. And you said, I want to talk about the basic violent issue of white artists using black bodies as literal props to engage what is always a predominant white gallery going audience and then you said she's got a solo show at a big institution and no one can say anything now except that we can and will and did even though we're tired of being the only ones to do so people go around with these feelings of frustration and don't say them usually because they're scared or they don't know what will happen when when they say it but you guys just go and say what we're generally feeling I'm just wondering what is going on with white artists using black bodies to represent an experience that isn't theirs I just don't understand that you know like I've been asked to shoot stories like on the gay experience and I'm just like I'm just not going to do that because that's not my experience and I'm interested in how your like listeners responded to your review compared to what do we call them I don't know the establishment I think with the institution or like the establishment in the words that you said like I think they kind of like have this this weird reputational risk tied up to the things we write so with that Zoe Paul review we heard afterwards that Spike Island took that review because the show was at Spike Island Mm -hmm. um down in Bristol they took that really seriously they had they're quite invested in 
I guess this narrative or, you know, this narrative that they are committed to diversity and inclusion and equality within the gallery space. They they were the ones that like put on the Labena Himid show that won the Turner Prize and, you know, that, or that got her nominated. And, um, you know, they're, they're quite invested as an institution or, you know, the director of that institution was quite invested in, you know, the, the discourse around um, diversity and inclusion. Um, so we found out that they took that review into a meeting and they kind of they really discussed it. I mean, whether anything kind of came of that is neither isn't really. I haven't seen it like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I've seen from any gallery or esta- like establishment a kind of real sincere listening to the things that we're saying, because I think. I think sometimes the way that our writing gets consumed is quite specific. People tend to take like the easiest parts of it, the parts that are easiest to absorb, the parts where we're kind of pointing fingers at people. So Mm -hmm. emerging white emerging artists will like lap up the bits where we say like, this is the fault of the establishment. Mm -hmm. And we're like, and they're like, yeah, yeah, get them. I'm kind of really disillusioned with that because I think in over the past four years, perhaps the past two years more so, we've kind of somehow, right, been pigeonholed. <laughs> um, this weird reputation that, that hasn't been, it hasn't come from either of us or the things that we've written. It's kind of been thrust upon us where the the white alternative art world, whatever the fuck that means, mm. has seen us as, as their voice in a way. Mm. Like they think we're speaking for them because we're not writing for like a major mag or like, you know, like a major publication. Mm. And we don't have like, traditional funding structures or traditional mm. sizing structures we're kind of loose cannons in a sense mm. so they've kind of like taken us on as their own and like these people will speak for us I don't really see that because there's very little that I have in common with white emerging artists yeah I, like it's always been the case like I've kind of that, that's never been the culture I'm doing it for but also it's easy for them to say well you guys are doing the work now so you speak for all of us it's also like a, a giving over of responsibility they think well someone's doing that so we don't have to do anything apart from go yeah girl you yeah. say it do, yeah. you know that happens in in so many areas and it's like you didn't ask for that responsibility you're just doing what you're doing I think in that weird kind of burdening of responsibility it's kind of like well you're not really listening to what I'm saying either because I'm I'm there are so, there have been so many instances instances where I've spoken about like Things like Zoe Paul, like mm. using these uh, these teapots that were like modelled on, they were heads, but they were black, and it was like so, it, it was so violent, like, and we were the, it was a, it was a press preview, so mm. we we'd got this like weird coach down to Spike Islands, from like outside the Tate Britain, like it was kind of like a free ride. They gave us lunch. They were like, oh yeah, we just, we just love to show you the shows, and like we, we got into the gallery with all these other critics, and everyone else was just kind of nodding and being. Like, <laughs> So interesting. I'd love to ask a question. Ask a question. Polit- like, let's get into politics. Like, what about gender? And I was like, Oh my God, are you serious? How is no one talking about this? So I was like, I turned to Gavin. I was like, You need to ask a question because I'm not fucking asking a question. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, am I going to be the angry brown woman in the room? No fucking way. And so, like, Gab was like, What? Why do you use? You're a white artist. Why? Why are there black heads? As, as teapots and fountains in the show. Like, is this a? Do you see this as a problem? And and Zoe Paul was like, I mean, yeah, this is the second time that someone said this. So, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll really take it to heart. Hmm. What? That was it? Yeah. She didn't have an answer? Yeah, no, no answer. I know. Okay. And people 
came up to us afterwards, like all these other critics and like people from institutions that were like on that press bus. And they were like, I'm so glad you said something like it, it was exactly what I was thinking. I'm glad you said something. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so stressful. But like things like Zoe Paul happen on the on, on the scale of the artist led, like in and amongst the emerging art world. Like, let's not forget about Hetty Douglas and like mm. all these other like white artists are white artists, like regardless of scale. It, it might end up feeling a bit more cogent or like solidified at the end of like you know, these massive institutions that can kind of like host Turner Prize nominees. Mm-hmm. Like, there are also huge abuses of power and huge racial imbalances on the side of the artist led. So like with our writing, there's like a weird interaction with it where white people don't really want to like see themselves in what I'm identifying. They separate themselves from whiteness when when. I'm using very direct pronouns and like saying like you white people this is what the white institution does and I think I, it's interesting for me as a writer I think because I've got to try and balance all these different ways in which I can potentially like foster or facilitate an understanding or like an <laughs> identification like how many different ways can I say it how many different ways can I put it what could I write that will kind of shake things up mm-hmm. and I feel like it's quite a hard line position because I'm not sure too many people agree with me um on this but I don't think white artists should be using black or brown bodies in their work period Mm. I think that's a really problematic position for them to take I'm saying that and I'm like no I know loads of people that agree with me on this like Mm. but like you know within Mm. the space of the art establishment like Mm. if I went to a press preview and I said this I imagine people would look at me funny but Mm. like um, yeah, I don't think they should be representing it in their work at all. Have you read that article on Mother Jones by um, yeah. it's by this guy called Chirag Bakhtar? He he kind of has this like artistic identity of someone called Pars in My Hindi. He wrote about his experience working with the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. I'll send you a link. Actually, really yes, please, because I'm scribbling it down. But if you could, yeah. that'd be awesome. Um, so he he wrote about like his experience working with the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, and it was kind of a really horrible violent experience for him where the institution was like come in oh my god we'd love to have your work that's like totally about like white people doing yoga and then Mm. proceeded to like censor him and um intervene in his work and like try and de-escalate some of the perhaps more uncomfortable parts of it where they'd have to confront their own whiteness or like their own complicity yeah in the article he says something really great which i'm just going to read out because it's like Mm -hmm. in front of me um he says, my experience with the Asian Art Museum was an exercise in watching white people work out their identity on the back of mine. Mm. The platform they seemed to give me, it turned out, wasn't actually for me. It was for them. A way to fashion my brownness into something they could wear. Mm. I think, like... That's everything, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very colonial kind of taking. I'll play with that for a while. We were in Sweden. We were doing a talk for L'Internationale. They invited us to chair a panel with a white author who's Swedish, white Swedish, and had written a book about from the perspective of a Syrian refugee. And it was horribly violent. It was it kind of involved multiple abuses of power that he kind of like really romanticised. And we were kind of like, do you not do you not do, do you not see a problem with this? Like the question of agency there is just completely like like blown past like you've just blown past any kind of consideration of your own agency or position in this and you're just like taking it you're inhabiting this position you're like it's like possession right why we left that panel feeling like really 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 deeply uncomfortable like it was quite a violent panel for Mm -hmm. us and then he waited outside the mcdonald's we were out we were in 
for like 45 minutes for us to come out and then confronted me on the street and I, I really thought that guy was gonna smack me like yeah like people really don't want to kind of confront it and it like in this weird kind of passive aggressive because it ended up it was kind of like implicitly aggressive confrontation like he kept saying to me you think I'm a powerful guy like I'm not powerful and I was like the fact that he's the fact that like he as a person was unable to kind of confront his own power mm. and position and like there was no kind of irony in what he said mm. no kind of self-awareness of like mm. power that he has as a white man the ability to just inhabit another body like it's a pair of shoes yeah so he it's, it's tokenistic as well so I bet this is it international that had him on they probably thought that they were doing something great for diversity but that was probably their idea of being really inclusive but it's still not okay is it like it's a head wreck I think in my mind it's it's always been a question of as a critic I'm very aware that if I try and write objectively in this like academic disembodied voice like the same kind of voice I use for my dissertation if I was to like embody that voice it would involve like stripping off these parts of me that I don't particularly want to strip off like Mm -hmm. like my experience is like a brown girl growing up in North London, a Muslim woman, you know, I've got to try and go back and they'll ask me how I'm doing and what I'm up to. And I've got to kind of justify it and be like, oh, I did this. Yeah, that's yeah. weird. Art is yeah. weird. Yeah. It's, it's a nice grounding tool in a way, in like an implicit coded way, right? Like my subjectivity isn't really allowed to speak neutrally or it's not given the privilege of being able to like speak neutrally you know if you're if you're jj charlesworth or you know you're waldemar yanisak or like some other broadsheet critic you're able to speak in this way that's objective that's why criticism works like when they speak objectively it's kind of like okay well this is universal this is for everyone this is the Mm. truth you've written this thing and now this artwork has some kind of like academic like socio-historical canonical importance you know whether that's for art history it's been canonized for art history or canonized for the market that that really is just so boring to me like (laughs) of course yeah it's definitely boring they are used to picking up taking from taking power it's like intellectualizing the world around them it's like picking up points for them and that elevates their power within their groups but it's still very much an echo chamber so what they do is they don't engage with or try and understand the perspectives in which the art was creative historically they've never had to do that because if you control the world (laughs) like all you've had to do is acquire things that still remains the consciousness in which so many even critics work and so many educators work. And and I really don't think that they understand when people are saying this is not reaching us. I really don't think they have the ability to understand that. And I felt all of this going on at Freeze Art uh, Show. I loved your Instagram I was ranting about it, but it was such a physical, visceral experience that I had that I couldn't really, like, intellectualise. I didn't know why I felt so weird about being there, even though I've been for so many years. This particular year really upset me, and I came back and I was ranting about it. Like, maybe I shouldn't, like, be involved in the art world because my head is really fucked, and I don't know I don't know why. I don't think I'm, like, strong enough to handle all these messages that I was picking up. Like, I felt like I was um, kind of assaulted by so many things that I couldn't quite understand. But when I took a step back and looked at it, 
it was all to do with what you were just saying there. And I saw all of that happening. And I was very aware of my position walking around as a perceived nobody because I'm not rich, right? There was a Cara Walker stand and they had like some of her etchings and notes and stuff. So there wasn't a big sign that said Cara Walker. You just walked into this stand and I was like, well, you know, what's this? But the whole stand was empty and I was like why is no one walking in here? What the fuck? Like, if this had Carl Walker in massive letters, like, like a massive sign, by, and that I think that said a lot about how people are engaging with art at the moment. If someone tells us this can make us rich, then we will buy it. But there was such little engagement with it. And the tension um, between that feeling that the art wasn't for me because I'm not rich, but knowing that, of course her work is for me that was a very difficult feeling to carry around the economic um aspect of freeze art fair is so hushed that it made me think about when I was looking at your site how you're completely visible I know this is not the you know your art critics and you're working online and it's not the same as you know curate uh, people acquiring art and dealers you make all of your accounts completely visible can you imagine if that happened like if art dealers <laughs> made their accounts visible like we start we started <laughs> publishing our accounts because we were being I think I think we were being lowballed by a university for a lecture that we were being asked to do and we were kind of like yeah we'd love to do this lecture but that's not enough money like you can't I think they wanted to pay us one fee for us to split between the two of us and we were like no that I'm sorry that's not how that works so Gab I think texted me and she was like, I'm going to go find every single job we've ever done. I'm going to publish it online. I'm, I'm going to send it to them and be like, look, we now publish our accounts. <laughs> like, this is what everyone else has paid us. You need to match that or go away. Like, <laughs> and so in a way, like it came from, I decided to do it because it was kind of a bargaining tool. We were being consistently underpaid or like people were trying to consistently underpay us or pay us one person's fee despite the fact that there were two people doing two people's amount of work. Like mm-hmm. there have been multiple times where we've had to refer to it and be like, um, just so you know, this job and the amount that you pay us will be made public. So if you want to pay us a hundred pounds for us to split between the two of us for an artist talk on a Thursday afternoon, that's fine. But like, it will be public and people have gone away and come back to us like, Oh my God, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to be paid exactly what you're owed. And it, it like people change really quick. They're being held accountable in a way by the visibility. It, it, at some time, at sometimes it is like a hyper visibility that, you know, the white people has within online spaces that it can be like a double edged sword. Like, mm-hmm. But in some way that hyper visibility does really work for us because we can kind of use it against people who perhaps want to underpay us. But also it's really good for like other emerging creatives in whatever area they're in when they're asked to do these things that aren't aware that they can be paid for these things. And this is what they can be paid for. Because how many flipping emails or phone calls or texts like have you sent to mates going, oh, someone's asked us to do this and we don't know and they're offering me this. And you don't know if it's a shit offer or not. It's really helpful for that as well. No, absolutely. Like that kind of that was like a nice sweetener at the end for us because we were like I think we realized after we did it we were like oh shit like you know I've overheard conversations between two artists that like both did a talk at say I don't know Jerwood mm. it, was, it was literally Jerwood I think um 
and they were like oh um how much did Jerwood pay you to do that artist talk oh they paid me such and such amount oh my god are you joking they paid me this much more and they you know these two artists are in quite a similar position like there shouldn't really be any reason for that discrepancy but like institutions and like the way that the economics of the art world flows like the core program actually ends up being like deeply underfunded in comparison to like say the directors that are being paid six figures um, yes plus a, a bonus that's 25 percent of the of their salary like when you i mean have you seen how much the director of the science museum gets paid no oh, right so this like popped out like this popped up yesterday the the staff at the science museum are on strike because they're not being paid london living wage Shit. yeah i think the, the uh, director of the science museum gets paid 100k like a yearly bonus of 25k but like a lot of their front of house staff are being paid 19k but oh my God. they can't afford to pay their staff a living wage right like the the way that the money in these institutions gets distributed is completely like it, it totally follows the way that like existing social and like societal and like political and inequities kind of exist already right mm. like like as creative laborers i think you know in in absence of like in the absence of like a solid or powerful union, which I'd really still love to see, I'd really love for like art workers to have a union. We've we've been in Norway a lot recently and they've got a really great culture of like union. I mean, they've got oil money, but like, mm. <laughs> so it's a different context. But, you know, while we're in the midst of austerity, the arts are being strategically defunded while, you know, the, the power just rises to the top along with the money. Yeah. And, it, it, in my mind, it just speaks to nothing more than like the deep-seated conservatism at the heart of the art world. Like, it's like all—it's where all bad things in society go. On our end, it—it it feels helpful for us to publish our accounts so that like there is a reference. The fact that like the art world doesn't really talk about money in any kind of, in in a in a in an explicit, honest, or transparent way only goes to like serve the ends of these institutions that really, you know that just really love exploiting us for some reason it's their sick hobby it's not just emerging artists that get mugged off when they kind of you know enter the workforce or the creative workforce and realize that they've you know they should have asked for payment for something that you know exposure isn't payment mm, but exactly it's also mid-career artists like how much do you get paid for a, a Tate solo show like how much did Mark Leckie get paid for his mm. his show at the Tate Britain I want to know yeah. I'll ask him <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, there was a, uh, a guest of mine like, um, called Daniel Adotan and he's um, a filmmaker and a photographer and he worked um, for a while in the digital department at the V&A and now he's gone freelance and I was chatting to him about this and um, and he was just his his focus is on gentrification um, in South London the areas that he grew up and he now lives and how the artists um just like in so many areas have been are being pushed out and it's gentrified yeah. and it's for the rich and and he's saying but you know um and what happens is the the local art institutions you know they don't have a diversity strategy even though we know that those aren't really functioning strategies or policies anyway but they don't have any of those and um they don't have um any non-white people on their board or yeah. working in the gallery but what they do is they will say you know here's 50 quid um we've completely taken over your whole area we've pushed you all out we've got no support for local artists but what we're doing is we'll throw you 50 quid and come and do a workshop for us oh, and God. that would make us be able to sleep tonight yes. you know and that's how it works and he's just saying you know can we start just saying no fuck off 
to mm. these things we don't want your fucking 50 quid that you're going to throw us so you can say that you're inclusive it's just not working these are big structures here part of me wants to say like oh not everything's transactional right like I kind of I'm really valuing this conversation like despite the like you know not despite but like regardless of whether I'm being paid or not paid mm-hmm. like I think so in my mind I'm kind of like yeah there is that there are like it's not that like I want to be paid for every single interaction and every inter- interaction or like moment has to be monetized. Sometimes, you know, a conversation is just a conversation. It's not like a crit or like yeah, you know, a guest lecture spot. Like sometimes you're just having a chat and yeah. it's kind of, I think, you know, the way that capitalism works is like, it makes you kind of, it, it's, it stresses you out. And like, there's this weird kind of hyper-focus on, you know, the, the microeconomics of everything. And, but like that in itself is like a privileged position, right? Like, and with, with, did you see the meme that we made? <laughs> At the moment, we've just been like off on one with memes. We've like, we made like one and now we're hooked. It was um, galleries thinking of commissioning underrepresented artists for solo exhibitions versus paying them £50 to do a workshop as part of the public programme instead. And it's the kombucha girl <laughs> being like, ooh. Or... Yes, yes, yes. And I copied in Daniel in that, who <laughs> I was saying, it was just talking about, yeah, talking about the same thing. It's a thing, right? Like, part of me kind of understands why someone would say yes to that 50 quid. Like, 50 quid is like... It, it, that's the food shop for like maybe exactly. a couple of weeks if it's just exactly. you like I, I don't think it should be like a hard line of like you know this is a picket line we're not going to cross it if you do if you do this workshop if you accept that 50 quid you're a scab because mm. I mean you know I, I don't think that's helpful that doesn't really allow for like the human within, within all of this it's so difficult to make creative labor your source mm. your source of income because like so many people have to like survive by getting jobs outside of it. And so then this becomes like a kind of labor of love in a way. Yeah. And so in a way I can kind of understand why you say yes to like things like that, because you know, sometimes like 50 quid is like 50 quid. And but I think maybe like a bit more understanding about like what those kind of public program moments do, like what, what are you actually entering into in that moment because I know so many people who've done like anything from like a Tate late to like Mm. you know a a little workshop at a gallery in South London that's that's complicit in art washing the area across the range of that scale there's kind of this idea that like we should be grateful for the opportunity going back to what that guy Chirag Bhakta said like Mm. if they're if they're inviting us in like under the pretense of like diversity and inclusion like the institution is then like working out their identity on the back of your own or like perhaps in a more tangible way if it is tokenism then you're part of like something really valuable you're part of a number that becomes really valuable to them if you are like going in there to be diversity fodder like Mm. they're then able to like put you into a number that they can take back to their core funders be they the arts council or like I mean, most most likely it is the Arts Council, like these massive national portfolio organisations. They're able to then go back to the Arts Council and say, look how fucking diverse we are. Like, we, we care so much about, like, black and brown artists. Like, yeah. we're funding this. And it is something that the Arts Council is saying that they care about because mm. a few years ago they they put out requests for, like, a creative case for diversity from all their NPOs. Mm. Um, you know it it kind of it was fucked at the time because 
at no point did they specify, you know, they just said, make your creative case for diversity. And everyone was like, uh, what? What? <laughs> like, what does that mean? There was, there was very kind of like loose definition and they didn't really say like what diversity meant, you know, what was expected of institutions. And in a way, maybe that was a bit of a power move because it was kind of like, you know, go on, pitch it. But like, yeah, exactly. They're, te- they're saying, telling us what to do because we don't know what the fuck we're doing. Yeah. I think in a way, also, that vacuum kind of allowed lots of institutions to, yeah, to, to kind of like position themselves as like super fucking woke when actually majority of their interactions with artists of colour come on the end of like public programme in exactly those moments that you um, that you mentioned where they're paying being paid 50 quid for a workshop you know maybe not 50 quid at the tape maybe it's 100 150 a 250 pound day rate but you know at the scale of the tape if they're really committed to diversity and equality in the arts as you know as they say in in their um they, they've got like a little document about like equality and um equal treatment their their like their moral code or something that they hold all their their hires to like their hr department's written this like little moral code their ethics guidelines that's the word <laughs> <laughs> i think if that was really the case on the scale of the tape perhaps there would be a bit more effort into like investing in artistic development because yeah. these interactions are so fleeting it's you come in here's your 250 quid get out ask yes. your debt yes and it's kind of I don't know that particular moment is something I'm quite interested in I wrote a text about this around this time last year actually because I published it on Diwali which is coming up on Monday so good oh, oh no Sunday so like yeah it's, it was published this weekend last year but um it was called the problem with diaspora art which mm. I think is a misleading title because most of it kind of or I think the most important part of that text focuses on the way that like institutions like the Tate, perhaps like the BNA, you know, these enormous organisations that receive so much funding from the Arts Council, like mm. so much taxpayer money, like they are our institutions. Mm. We, we're their constituents. Like they belong to us. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going to happen next, but there will be changes from all of these conversations about this. There has to be. Um, but do you think that you're being listened to more now as you're being invited by bigger galleries on panels and to review their shows like you were um, in Norway? Um, but you know what it's like? It's, it's the chicken and egg thing, isn't it? More bigger galleries are asking you to talk and they're engaging with you. So more will then follow whether they understand what you're doing or not. Do you really think the bigger institutions are they really listening to no. what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, you know, I don't, it's like they're hopping onto your your back of, of what you're doing, but are they really listening? Yeah. I think it's the same thing as like, the same frustration I have with like, white emerging artists kind of only really grabbing the bits that feels comfortable or palatable to them. Mm. I think the same goes to the institutions. I mean, recently, um, this is all very topical, so I, I hope... <laughs> yeah, this is wicked. But... Um, you know, Madani Eunice recently left the South Bank Centre after like uh, 10 months on the job, I think it was. Um, mm. It was it, it was like a really kind of exciting hire. Like Eunice was like. The, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was at the um, he was at the he was at the Bush Theatre before and he kind of like he the, pro, the, the, the stuff he did at the Bush was kind of really, really promising for the South mm. Bank Centre now to kind of have that as a potential kind of future right like this idea that yeah. like, that 
that there could be an institution in South London, like with a community on the doorstep that's like, you know, received so much strategic underfunding mm. of like, so, like things that really should be like social, I guess like some, something like social utilities for want of a better word. Like, yes, clubs, like fucking everything, like anything that could be for social good is being strategically underfunded in these parts of London. I guess with with the news that Madani Yunus has um has left the South Bank, like mm-hmm. kind of citing the fact that like you know you go into an institution with these radical ideas, with this radical track history at the bush, and mm-hmm. you know with this, so much potential around you to kind of make the South Bank Centre like a place that can really support artists emerging artists the diverse community that is on your doorstep like all these amazing things like that kind of implement this radical praxis that could be you know internationally exemplary Mm. as like an arts institution that is you know locally focused but also producing things that speak on an international stage or like you know creating work that's of national importance like you know his work at the bush did like Mm. to go in and i think you know everyone's citing that the reason Eunice has left is because like the South Bank Centre is just like in a point of inertia like right. there are warning that like the, the, Lynn Gardner wrote an article about this for the stage um I don't think it's behind the paywall but it is worth a read I'll send it you as well thank but, you <laughs> I've got so many citations today um, <laughs> and I love it I love it yeah go on but they like like the South Bank Centre like they I think there was like a real moment right where they were kind of like they hired this guy to be like, okay, cool, come change. But I don't think they wanted the radical politics or the change that came along with it. They just want like a visible face of diversity to be seen to be doing, you know, equality and inclusion work visibly, you know, on the surface. They don't want to do, they, they don't want to undergo the rap, like the structural changes, the rigorous structural changes that it, that would be required if they were to do that work sincerely. And like, um, who was it? I think it was, it was Bobby Mono, Bobby mm. Mono on Twitter. I, can't, I don't know their, their like full name, yeah. but um, they said something along the lines of like, what is the point of like encouraging black and brown people to invest their time and labor and energy into a sector that like says that they're will, they, they like, oh, we want to check, like we want to change, we want to include you. And so like, it's kind of, it's, it's really manipulative, right? Yeah. So they yeah, come, yeah. But like, we're not willing to dismantle, you know, any of the things that would that would enable you to change like we're not willing to do the work on our part you just rage against the machine yeah and like I think for me it proves that like I guess all marginalized communities have this like weird kind of relationship with representation or we're like forced into this weird relationship with representation where we're told multiple times like on multiple different levels across the scale that like more people that look like you need to be in power you know Mm. how can you imagine it when you don't see it like but it's not really representation that we need right like it's change it's like we want representation yes and we also need like a radical dismantling of the structures that perpetuate inequalities that kind of go beyond us as individuals like we need individual change and we need like collective change like yeah we need like something beyond the representational politics we need a radical liberatory politics that also accompanies that 
it's going to be so interesting when yeah. he talks about what has actually happened and what he saw there and what he experienced there because he will and that will shine another light on what's really going on but like what a major fuck up yeah no completely like it's it's a visible fuck up like god knows why like i i'd be interested to know from you know him himself like you know when you think about the process of hiring a director it's so rigorous like they must have known what he was like going to you know they, they must have known the position he was speaking from it's always the same fucking thing it's like um when uh, Edward Enenfall was taken on at Vogue, can you yeah. imagine those discussions there and the worry about them losing their backers and their advertisers? The intention is then actualized and people are like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. Vogue is now a black platform. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Which it isn't, but that's how the original um, supporters um, like trustees or funders or whatever they see that if like there's a small change happening yeah. that suddenly it's not for them without actually realizing that that the whole fucking landscape is theirs to to start with but yeah. it's like when things change people suddenly throw their arms up in the air I think there's a lot of talk that doesn't match actually <laughs> the yeah. practical realities they yeah. they haven't processed what that means in real terms when someone comes in and changes something it's all just ideas on paper do you know what I mean and it's I think it's completely knowing it's completely purposeful like this is the way that like institutions survive right mm. like they absorb the critique that hits them they are able to kind of co-opt any kind of radical or destabilizing movement or wind or like philosophical god knows what like anything that threatens their stability they they kind of appear to bend towards it, but actually fundamentally remain the same. And anything that hits them in terms of criticism, in terms of like demands for change, just kind of slides off because they can just appear to change, but actually neutralize the threat from the outside. And that's kind of, that's the problem with like institutional critique in a way, like that it kind of provides the institution with a language to co-op and then redeploy liberatory politics back to the people demanding change, but actually not fundamentally do any fucking work. Like, yeah. And kind of, it seems like that's what that's what happens at the South Bank Centre, like, and that's kind of like, it seems like that's what the problem is with, like, places, you know, that, that go in and art wash and gentrify and then, you know, sling someone 50 quid for a, wor a workshop, that that's, that's what that is. And, like, the arts, in a way is able to contain like the worst, the very worst, the deep, the deepest seeded conservative elements of society. In my mind, where I want to write from, from is like this place where, that considers like art as a social good, like a social service. Like what would it look like if we all felt as entitled to, to the space in a gallery as like we did about like the Lido or like a soft play centre. All of these things are, are, are being looked at, but they don't really want to look at them because it's going to destabilise um, every brick on which they stand to retain their power. Yeah. You know, I love hearing you talk about all of I love it so much. How do you want support, like, to carry on doing what you're doing? Like, because we all need support and I'm not like... I'm I'm not backwards and forwards in asking for things for people. Do you know what? I just want people to leave fucking reviews on the podcast app. I get so <laughs> like, do you 
know what I mean? What what do you guys like? What would support you? Just keep helping you, like keep going with what you're doing. You're going to do it anyway. But what what support <laughs> what support would you like from others? Like you've got a Patreon page. Oh God. Um. So yeah, as you mentioned, we've got the Patreon page. That is, thank you. I will plug that. That is <laughs> patreon.com forward slash the white pube with awesome. a P. <laughs> if you're rich or you've got rich mates, tell them. Yeah. Please join up as a patron because that is, yeah, that's the most consistent funding that we receive. We don't, we're not publicly funded as a website. We don't receive any kind of public funding from the Arts Council. Despite our best efforts, they just really don't want to fund us. It's fine. I'm not taking it personally. <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, we're funded by our readers because, I mean, I guess we're accountable to them anyway, but we don't really want any kind of like outside private funders. Yeah, at the moment, it's at a point where we could probably take like a decent wage from it. So it's not like it's not of the utmost importance if you absolutely are not in a place to. Yeah. Like we don't want to put everything behind a paywall. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but if you've got rich mates, then they tell them. Yeah. yeah. Tell them. I'm kind of like, oh, no, yeah, I want to help. So I guess as, as well, that's something I should. I think I want to put that out. Be like, if you if you are like an aspiring or an emerging art critic of colour, and there is any way that I can help, please DM me. I'm like, please DM like at the white pube or email us at info at the white pube. Or like DM me on my personal, my Twitter is at Zarina Mohammed, M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. Like if there's anything I can do, if you want like a pair of eyes, like if you want, you know, a proofread, some advice, a chat, I'm happy to go for coffee. Or like, you know, if you if you want an introduction to someone, I'm like super happy to like, I don't know, pay it forward in a way. Like You also have your dazed column, right, where people can write in? Yes. Oh, yeah. So we can, um, we write an agony column for dazed. Yeah, if you've got an agony or a, an issue that you would like us to answer anonymously, we can. And, yeah, if you've got a problem that you have with the art world and gripes, please do email us. We want to hear. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah, wicked. No. Oh my god! I'm like obviously like my mind is. I think I'll send in an, an anonymous one, and then it would get read publicly, right? Yeah. 